Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 127. Taking a break from our Job series this week, because it's Vision Sunday. We are desiring to catch a vision for what God would have for Legacy Baptist Church in the next year. And as I was praying and contemplating about vision for the new year, Psalm 127 just echoed in my heart. And I wanted to share it with you today. You know, with a new year brings new goals, new determinations, new ideas. It's writing good for us within this time of the new year to desire to set goals for ourselves. I am as burned out as anyone with the whole concept of New Year's resolutions. I don't really like the whole idea of them, particularly as culture has fleshed them out. However, we do see in Scripture the concept of new days, new weeks, new years being new opportunities to serve and love God and new opportunities for God's mercy to be poured out upon us. The great prophet would say that God's mercy is new every morning. And as a matter of fact, right after that phrase was the phrase we just sang, Great is thy faithfulness. And so the prophet appealed to the reality of a new day to understand the reality of God's mercy being anew every day. And so it's good, and it's proper, and it's okay for us. To understand the concepts of newness that come with days, that come with weeks, that come with years. This morning we're going to consider the new year. We're going to consider the vision for this church through the eyes of King Solomon in Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is a psalm written presumably by Solomon. If you look at the title for this, it says a song of degrees for Solomon. And though we see the for there, the Hebrew word behind it could mean for or by. It could, it's, it's a very generalized preposition and there are reasons to believe based upon the content within the psalm as well as how it is structured within this section known as the Song of Degrees that it was in fact Solomon that wrote it, though we cannot be sure. I'm confident or comfortable saying that Solomon was the one that wrote the psalm. Psalm 127 is the middle of a 15 psalm psalter as it were known as the song of degrees you'll find that from psalm 120 to psalm 134 each of those psalms is labeled a song of degrees there are no other psalms in the scripture that are labeled songs of degrees it is only these 15 psalms psalm 127 is the middle of that the first seven of those are not ascribed to um, Solomon. The last seven are not ascribed to Solomon. There's only this one in the middle. Now, two of the seven psalms on either side of Psalm 127 are ascribed to David. It'll say a song of degrees of David. Both on the, the... Latter and the former side of Psalm 127, two are ascribed to David. The other five on either side of Psalm 127 are anonymous. There's no real pattern other than that that we can see. Let me read to you the pattern or the lack of pattern that we see in these 15 psalms. Starting at Psalm 120, you have an anonymous psalm, an anonymous psalm, then a Davidic psalm, then an anonymous, then a Davidic, anonymous, anonymous. Then you have Solomon's psalm. 
Then you have an anonymous, 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 Davidic, anonymous, Davidic, anonymous. So there's no real pattern on either side. However, we do have 15 psalms. They're all songs of degrees. And there's this one that stands out in the middle. The song for Solomon as we see it in the King James. No one really knows why they're called songs of degrees. The idea of songs of degrees could literally be translated songs of ascents. And some people believe that this would have been the songs that were prescribed to be sung by the pilgrims as they made their journey three times a year into Jerusalem. You recall that there were three feasts per year that men were required to attend in Jerusalem. Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so during those three times of year, all of the men of Israel would make their way to Jerusalem for these feasts. So there's a possibility that when they were ascending up to Mount Zion, these were the songs that they would have been singing during their ascent. We cannot know for sure, however. Now as we look into Psalm 127, it's divided into two fairly distinct parts. The first part calls for dependence upon the Lord. The second part is a remembrance of man's legacy from the Lord. That legacy being that of his children. And through this psalm today, I would like us to understand the vision for Legacy Baptist Church for this year, as well as broadly, as we consider the realities of chartering, the vision for Legacy Baptist Church as a whole through the teachings and exhortations of Psalm 127. I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll talk about it together. Please look with me, Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The first element of the vision of legacy that I would like us to understand from Psalm 127 this morning, found in verses 1 and 2, unless God builds our legacy, our labor is empty. Unless it is God that builds our legacy, our labor is empty. Solomon begins the psalm with a form of Hebrew parallelism known as climactic parallelism. Many of you in this room have been uh, in the various discussions of parallelism that I've spoken of. There are customarily five different types of parallelism that we, we can pinpoint in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme in sound, it rhymes in thought. In the English language, Hebrew poetry or English poetry rhymes in sound. Most English poetry. You have things such as haikus that are structural by their very nature, but a lot of things, uh, poetry by its nature in the English language rhymes in sound. That's what music is. That's why when you sing a song and you have bad rhymes at the end of songs, it kind of grates you a little bit. You say, no, no, they didn't do a good job with that one. Or they try to rhyme things with the same word. You know, they... they use time and time and it just doesn't work because you're, you're not rhyming then, you're just using the same word. That catches us because we are such a, a, a culture that likes to hear the rhyming of sound. That's how we operate. That's how our, our 
language works. Hebrew wasn't like that. Hebrew poetry was poetry of thought. Thoughts were parallel. Concepts were parallel. And so here we have what's called climactic parallelism. Within this parallelism, each phrase builds upon the phrase before, and it comes to a climax. In verses 1 and 2, there is a climax. Uh, verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 are building up to the reality at the end of verse 2. Unless the Lord is an integral part of a person's efforts concerning the growth and protection of their endeavors, their efforts are all but empty. That's what the psalmist is saying. Unless God is an integral part of your efforts and my efforts in any of our endeavors, our efforts are nothing but vanity. They are empty. Now the particular context within which Solomon is speaking here is that of a house. Unless it is the Lord that builds the house, those who are building it do it in vain. However, the word in house doesn't always just mean a structure. It's the typical Hebrew word for house, bayit. So it's not unique in that way. The language is not unique. But quite regularly in the Old Testament, the concept of a man's house was the idea or a figurative reference to a man's legacy, to his family, to his wealth, to his reputation, to his community. In Genesis 7-1, God commanded Noah to enter into the ark with all his house. Obviously, he wasn't picking up a house and moving it into the ark. Now, certainly he would live in the ark for some time. Certainly his possessions made it into the ark. But what was it that was really important that needed to get into the ark? It was him and his family. It was him and his house that needed to get into the ark. In Genesis 12, 17, we have the account of Abraham in Egypt when Pharaoh took Sarah to be his concubine because he was under the impression that she was Sarah, Abraham's sister, which he, she was his half-sister, but uh, that, that they were not married. Now, according to the text, the scriptures say that God then plagued Pharaoh and his house for Abraham's sake. Now, as we think about the idea of God plaguing Pharaoh's house, you didn't see his walls necessarily filled with plague. Perhaps it was as well. But that is not what the reference was necessarily to Pharaoh's house being plagued. When it says that Pharaoh and his house was plagued, we know what that means. It means that his family, that his servants, that everyone connected to him was plagued because of this action that Pharaoh had done by taking Sarah. See, it was his legacy that was plagued. It was his, 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 everything associated with him. And we see throughout the book of Genesis that after this plague, when Pharaoh restores Sarah to Abraham, that his house is healed. And it specifically mentions his servants being a part of that. So his household, everyone in his household was plagued. That is his house. Now, Solomon says here, Except it be the Lord which build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Within the context of Psalm 127, Solomon is speaking of building a house. He might be speaking of building a physical structure, but from the context of the book and from the manner with which it's presented, recognizing that in verses 3, 4, and 5, Solomon is speaking of family, it seems very clear to us. That when Solomon is speaking of building a house, he is speaking of building a household, a legacy, a dynasty, 
a family, a living. That's what Solomon is speaking of here. Except it be, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, within this concept of climactic parallelism, we build upon that statement with the next statement. He says, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Now, the word city here, similar to that of house, could be used in reference to simply the buildings of a city. But that's not what we think of when we think of a city. Oftentimes, within the context of Legacy Baptist Church, we pray to God that he would use us to impact this city for Christ. Do we not? Now, when I am praying to God, God, please impact this city for, for Christ, I do not mean that I want God to use us to erect buildings in this area. It would be wonderful if God used us to erect a building, specifically a church building. I think that would be great. But that's not what we're praying when we're asking God to help us impact the city. We don't want to look over the city and say, wow, that shiny building there was built by us. That is our impact upon the city. We would like to look back in five years. We would like to look back in ten years and see souls in these seats, one to Christ through our ministry. We would like to see men and women discipled into godliness through this ministry. And so when we are praying, God, help us impact this city for Christ, we're talking about the people. We're talking about those who reside in this city. And that's what Solomon is saying here. Unless it be the Lord, except the Lord build the house. The man who's trying to build his legacy, his dynasty, his household is laboring in vain. Except the Lord build the city, except the Lord keep the city, excuse me, the watchman waketh, but in vain. A city is a city because the community that surrounds those buildings. A city is not a city until some degree of structure, order, and regulation unites people in close proximity toward common goals. May I just mention that a church is not a church just because there's a building. A church is not a church just because there's people in the seats. A church is a church when there's structure, order, and regulation, when there's purpose, when there's doctrine, when there is a, a vision that unites the people in close proximity toward a common goal. That's when a church is a church. Now, one of the common goals of a city community would be protection of that community. Once people have invested in a community, it is in their mutual interest to protect the community which has been established. So the city hires watchmen to watch over that city by night. Now, when we think of the idea of watchmen, I think of the men standing on the walls of the city looking out making sure that there was no invasion force coming. However, the idea of watchmen in the scriptures really goes beyond just those who were standing on the walls. In Song of Solomon, both in Song of Solomon 3 verse 3 and 3 verse 7, Solomon describes watchmen that went about the city. Literally, he was describing a community police force, as it were, that went about the city, patrolling the streets at night, protecting its residents, not just from dangers without the walls, but from dangers within the walls. And so Solomon is referencing those men who have been tasked with protecting the community, both from external and from internal threats. Now Solomon's statement is this, unless it is the Lord who keeps the city, Unless it is the Lord who protects the community, 
who watches over it, who protects it. All of those men who get up at night and seek to protect the community, all of those men standing on the walls, all of those men walking through the streets are doing it in vain. They might as well go back to bed because if God's not protecting it, then they might as well not be either because there's no protection in it. As Solomon continues in verse 2, he continues to build upon the idea of this emptiness. Remember, we're, we're climaxing here. We're, we're, we're looking at this climactic parallelism. He says, man is vain to arise up early or to sit up late. The poetic language here describes a man filled with cares, filled with worries. He is seeking to establish his legacy. He's seeking to build a house. He's seeking to build a city. He's seeking to build a community. And as he crunches the numbers, as he seeks to unite people, as he looks for the watchman, he wonders who might attack his legacy. He says it's vain for a man to rise up early, to stay up late. These worries are vanity. He continues speaking of the vanity of eating the bread of sorrows. Poetic language again, referencing the man who spends his days worrying about the nuances of the next meal. Will he have enough money? Will the harvest come through? Will he be able to feed his family, his servants, his household, his community, his city? Will they lose their home? Will they live? Will they survive? He spends his days filled with stress, with worry, and with cares. He's staying up late. He's getting up early. And the scriptures say it's vain. They have forgotten that it is the Lord that preserves a man's legacy. It is the Lord that builds a man's house. It is the Lord that builds a community. If only we will trust him to do so. Now, I've been saying all throughout that this is climactic parallelism. Let's look at the climax of these two verses at the end of verse 2. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Opposed to the man who labors in a fit of worry over the cares that rest upon him. That idea of laboring and worry is not that rightfully so a man recognizes his responsibility, but that he is taking all of the responsibility upon himself. Do you see the difference between a man who is laboring, recognizing that God has given him the responsibility to build his family or to build a church, and the man who feels as though it is his responsibility, that it all rests with him, that if he doesn't do it, no one will, that it's, it's on his shoulders? Do you see the difference? This is the difference that Solomon is prescribing here. This is what he's saying. It's the difference between the man who labors because God is with him and the man who labors because he says, if I don't do it, then it's just God. He's not trusting God. He's trusting himself to see the work done. Solomon finishes the thought with the biblical perspective of a man who recognizes that God builds his legacy. That God protects the legacy and that God provides for the legacy. Yes, God uses us. We have an offering box at the back of the church. That offering box is expected to be used. That offering box is there because we are facilitating you giving to the Lord by giving to the church. But does God need 
that offering box to be full every week to provide for this church. He doesn't. That's God's prescribed method, and so God will lay it upon the hearts of his people to give. But God provides for this church. You work hard for your family. You have a job. You seek to make money for your family. You seek to give them comfort. But God doesn't need you to have a job to provide for your family. Is that God's prescribed method of providing for family? Yes. Is that the way he usually works? Yes. But he doesn't need it. God can provide for you regardless. Many men in this church can testify to that. And so that's the lesson. That it's God that builds the house. It's God that builds the city. It's God that builds the legacy. It's God that builds the community. It's God that builds the church. And so he gives his beloved one sleep. We can rest in peace when we don't have a job or no money came into the box on any given Sunday. We could sit up late at night and fret and worry and say, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? But we recognize that God's in control and that God will provide. And so we can rest in peace, resting in God. That's the lesson. As Solomon then continues in verses 3 through 5, he talks about the absolute most important part of any man's legacy. And that is his children. That's our second point today. Our first point, we need to recognize that unless God builds our legacy, our labor is empty, it's vain. But second, we need to recognize that our children are our legacy from God. Verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 tells us children are an heritage from the Lord, of the Lord, excuse me, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Now the word heritage in the Hebrew is literally the word inheritance or possession. It's used both in a positive sense in scripture, gives something good, and a negative sense in scripture, giving something bad. There have been men who have had a good heritage and a bad heritage. They have received good inheritance and bad inheritance based upon their actions and so forth. The word reward here is uh, the word in the Hebrew that means a man's hire, a man's wages. Literally, the blessings that stem from a man's effort, from a man's labor, and from a man's diligence. And so as we put that together, what are we reading here? Children are an inheritance of or from the Lord. That a man looks at his children and that is the inheritance that God has given to him. And the fruit of the womb is God's reward. That is his wages. That is what God gives to a man as the end or the reward or the blessings of his labor. That's what verse 3 is telling us. Verses 4 and 5 are also very poetical, forming a simile which paints an illustration of the benefits of children to a man's legacy. Now verse 4 says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Verse 4 calls children like arrows in the hand of a mighty man. The bow and the arrow are precision weapons of warfare intended specifically for long distances. Now I call them precision because the arrow does very little good to someone who shoots an arrow 
if it doesn't hit its intended target. Arrows are not like some weapons that do splash damage. An arrow is not like a shotgun that spreads where you just have to point in the general direction. The arrow requires the hand of a very skilled man and in the hands of a very skilled man arrows are a devastating weapon. They can reach a man at great distances. They are silent in their attack. They are devastating. So in other words, arrows in the hands of the right man one who appreciates the weapon and knows how to guide arrows skillfully, arrows are extremely effective. If a man does not know how to guide those arrows skillfully, arrows are a waste. A man that does not know how to guide an arrow skillfully is not interested in using arrows in the battle because he's not going to get anywhere with them. Do you see the analogy? In today's society and culture, children are often seen by men as inconveniences. They're seen as encumbrances upon one's own ambition or freedom. They see children as an unfortunate side effect of their own worldly pleasure. This is akin to the man who has an arrow or two but has no idea what to do with them. This is akin to the man who has arrows who is about to step onto the battlefield and has no idea how to use them. He would much prefer some other form of warfare because there's no way he's going to hit his target with arrows. He dislikes arrows because arrows demand time. Arrows demand patience. Arrows demand practice. Arrows demand determination before they will fulfill their intended purpose. You can't just step out onto the battlefield, grab a bow and arrow, and expect to do a great job with them. You have to practice. If you don't practice, if you don't have the precision, then they're not going to do any good. On the other hand, there is the man who sees his children not as inconveniences, but as his legacy. He sees his children as an opportunity to make his mark upon the battlefield. He sees his children as the means by which, through careful guidance, through purpose, and through skill, through this gift that God has given to him, he can do something for God with these children. His children are a gift from God to continue the work which God began in this world. And so that man, the skillful man, the mighty man, is a man who is happy when his quiver is full of arrows and when he speaks with his dissenters at the gate, the scriptures say in verse 5, when he speaks with those who would deride his children, his family, his methods, he can speak boldly and with confidence because his children have followed the path that is set before them through careful and skilled guidance, like arrows to their intended target. And so children are indeed a legacy from the Lord. So on the second Sunday in 2013, as we consider Legacy Baptist Church, I would like to use this psalm to paint a picture of our coming year. You notice our name. Our name is Legacy Baptist Church. Truly, this message was intended in part to play off of that name 
Because in fact, that's what we're about. That's why this church is what it is. That's why we do what we do. Because we recognize children to be our legacy from God. And the only way that legacy will be effective, the only way the arrows can possibly hit their mark, is if we are skillful, patient, in guiding those arrows into their mark. And as Psalm 127 so aptly states, the only way any of that makes sense, the only way any of that works, is if God has been the one to build the house. And if God has been the one to build the city. If God has been the one to build the family. If God has been the one to build the faith community. It is a name, legacy, as a reflection of our determination to live by earnestly contending for the faith, to pass on the legacy of service to God, to our children. That's why our children stay with us in the services. That's why we are structured the way we're structured, so that our children have the best opportunity through our careful guidance throughout the week, based upon what we've learned on Sunday, to hit the mark with the next generation and the next generation. Now to that end, our church desires that we as individuals and we as families would build the church through building on the legacy of families. We as parents trust God to build our families. We trust God to protect our families, but we still bear the responsibility of raising and leading our families in the way that they should go. So we serve the Lord, actively trusting the Lord to guide us into godliness. Legacy Baptist Church is a large application of that same philosophy. Each one of you has been led to this body of believers for a particular reason. This body is forming into a community of like-minded men and women who desire to serve God in the manner that he has revealed to us from his word to be served. With all that is in me, I believe that this church, may I call it a faith community, is God's legacy in Buffalo, Minnesota. I believe this church is God's legacy in this city. Does that mean that every church, every other church in the city is full of unbelievers and is way off? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is I believe Legacy Baptist Church is God's legacy, is the means by which the truths of the gospel will be maintained and proclaimed in this city and the surrounding cities. That is why this church is here. That is why God has raised it up. That is why God has provided for it. And it has been God that has done the work. As concerning this legacy, King Solomon imparts upon us some wisdom. Except it is God who is the integral part of building this church, we labor in vain. Your pastor can get up here and can spout great things every week. We can get out there and we can hand out flyers. We can tell people about our church. We can implement programs. We could do all of those things. But if it's not God who is building the church, then we are laboring in vain. Then all of our efforts, we may make a big 
group of people. We may get a lot of people in the seats. We may need a bigger building. But it's all vanity if God hasn't done the work. And second, except God is the one who protects legacy, we defend it in vain. Legacy Baptist Church is a church that needs protection. We have decided, based upon our understanding of the Word of God, to stand strong upon the doctrines of God's Word. This makes us a target for Satan, as well as for those who would seek to water this church down doctrinally. This church stands very strong in its purity, in doctrine, and in theology. And we can work day and night to try to convince people of our theology, of our doctrine. We can work very hard to try to project, protect it, but if God is not the one who's protecting it, then we are defending it in vain. Do you see how this psalm mushrooms, as it were, into every aspect of our lives, into our families, and into our church? So as we close, I would like us to consider two thoughts on this wisdom. Number one, we must trust God to build and to keep His church in His way and in His time. It is not our job to grow the church in number, to provide for the church financially, or to protect the church. That is God's job. Now, He uses us, does He not? This church will grow a lot faster if you and I are out there winning people to Christ, discipling people, guiding people. This church will be protected as we learn ourselves what the Bible says so that we can defend our faith and protect it from being changed. And that's the second point. Notice that though God is the one who builds, that God is the one who protects, that God is the one who provides, the wise King Solomon takes for granted that there are in fact people building the house. There are in fact people building the city. King Solomon didn't write here, don't worry, you can sit around all day and do nothing because God's building the house. He didn't say, don't worry, you don't have to put watchmen on the walls because God is protecting the city. He said, the people that are building the city are building it in vain if God's not the one doing the work. Do you see the difference? Do you see how Solomon is taking for granted that men and women are rallying around a purpose and moving it forward for God? How men and women are rallying around protection and moving it forward for God? He's taking that point for granted and reminding us that, hey, let's remember that God is the one doing the work. That's what we've sung about already today. That's what we're going to continue to sing about. There's a balance here. God's provision, God's building, God's protection, along with our faithful labor. God will build His church. God will build Legacy Baptist Church. He has raised it up. He is growing it. He is providing for it. He has established it. But you and I have a part to play. Does God expect you and your family to be a part of a local church? Well, yes, we know He does. Nearly every New Testament epistle teaches, either directly or indirectly, that we have a responsibility to be active in God's work through a local body of believers. There's no question about that from God's Word. Now, if God expects you to be a part of a local church, the next question that you must ask yourself is, which one? Which church? 
many of us have been attending Legacy Baptist Church for some time now. Does God want you in this church? If God does not want you in this church, then it is time for you to go find the church that God wants you to be in. Say, Pastor, are you encouraging me to leave? No, I'm not encouraging you to leave. I want you here. But if God wants you somewhere else, you need to go with the place that God wants you to go to. But if this is clearly, by God's leading, the church that God wants you to be a part of, if He has led you here, if this is the church that you are comfortable in, if this church teaches what you believe the Bible says, if this is where God has led you, here's the next question. Are you actively engaged in building and protecting the legacy that God has given you to be a part of? Are you active and engaged in being a part of the legacy that God is building here? Certainly God has been the one that has provided for this church every step of the way. God has built His church. God will continue to provide and build His church. But He uses people. Solomon takes for granted there were people building the city, building the house. God uses people. This coming April, we'll talk about this in the meeting that is to come. By God's grace, Legacy Baptist Church is going to charter. We are going to become an anonymous, autonomous, not anonymous, an autonomous local church. We will not be anonymous, I can guarantee you that. We are going to become an autonomous local church. We're doing this because through prayer and counsel of men, both those who have helped us plant this church at Heritage Baptist and the leaders of this church, we have determined that this is God's timing. That we have a strong and foundational body of believers that is willing to put forth the time and the effort with God's help to build this church and to lead this church into the next phase of growth. We are confident that God has moved us forward toward this step. Now it's my desire today that every family under the sound of my voice this morning would be willing to join us in this endeavor. With your help, with God's leading, with God's protection, we can and will create a thriving community through Legacy Baptist Church, one that is right in doctrine, one that is accurate in its understanding of the Word of God, one that worships God in spirit and in truth, one that serves this community as God has called us to, and one that is reaching this community for Christ. Particularly, one that is passing on our legacy to the next generation. That's our vision. And it would be my desire to see every single person in this room join with me in that vision. I'm asking that from each person in this room this morning. To make that commitment. If you know this is where God would have you to be, then there's really no reason for you not to make that commitment this morning. I'm asking you to be devoted to this church. To do your best to make it to every service that you can possibly make it to. To do your best to join us when we have special conferences. To do your best to join us when we have fellowships together. To do your best to join us whenever you can because that is what a community does. 
In doing so, we actively fulfill the vision that God has given to us to be a building fitly framed together into exactly what God would have us to be. Now, perhaps you sit here this morning and you say, I'm just not to the point where I believe this is exactly where God wants me. Well, that's okay. I'm not asking you to leave and never come back. I don't want you to leave and never come back. Come back. Stay here. Continue to join with us. That's fine. That's wonderful. That's great. If you say, Pastor, I'm just not there yet, well, that's fine. But I would, I would expect you, as a born-again believer, to be visiting with us every week on the basis of evaluation until such time as you know for sure, one way or the other, that this is the church that God would have you to be a part of. And if you know, then I would expect you to join with us. And if you know that this is not the church for you, then I would expect you to go find the church for you. Because that is God's design. That is the way that God has ordained it to be. God has designed for you to be a part of a local church. You say, now, Pastor, membership's not in the Bible. I know it's not. Membership is an organizational element. But I would encourage you to be a part, active part, of this local body. And that's what I'm asking for this morning. If your name is not on the roll, I'm not going to get all up in arms. But will you become a part of this community? That's what I'm asking of you this morning. Because that is what God calls every believer to be. is a part of a group of believers serving God together. Now as we do this, as we move forward with our vision, we must trust God. Your pastor must leave it in the hands of God to build this church. We must leave it in the hands of God to build His church. But make no mistake, there's a lot of work for us to do. And it's not going to happen without that work. Because that's the way God has ordained it to be. Will you join with us this morning in building this legacy? And particularly taking the legacy that we will see built and passing it on to the next generation of believers. Let's pray together. Father.